welcome to the cast of Caught, where we talk all things related to the Dark Tower series by Stephen King. I'm your host, Rachel, and joining me is the other half of my quartet, the man with all the hives, DJ. <laughs> uh, what uh, uh, Rachel's alluding to is for some reason I managed to generate hives in the crook of both of my arms this afternoon. Uh, so I, I don't know what's going on. Um, uh, old old age, you know, this is when the hair starts growing out of my ears or something, uh, probably, right? <laughs> yeah, pretty much, right? I mean, you were watching The Stand. That's not a good sign. But also, <laughs> you're also like totally hopped up on Benadryl now. So this should be interesting. I, I, I think I got this. I, I think we could do this. Yeah, um, no, I, I definitely. Okay. So plan for this episode. We're going to kick off the show with an in-depth conversation about Wizard and Glass Part 3, Come Reap Chapter 7, Taking the Ball. Is that true? Yes, that's true. Yes, that's Taking true. the Ball. <laughs> um, and then we're going to close out our, I know we had talked about doing the last two episodes of The Stand to close out the show, This just to sort of wrap it up. But then, like we said, DJ, I got an attack of the hives. So we're just going to cover episode eight, The Stand. And then next week, we will definitely, or next episode, we will definitely, definitely wrap it up. <laughs> and we don't have a listener question this time because of a mix-up. But whatever, we won't go into all that. That one's my bad. Sorry, guys. Uh, I I, uh, I thought we were doing a lot, or I, we had planned for a longer show, and then uh, I messed it up by eh. not watching the last one. It'll be all right. It'll be okay. All right, cool. So before we get into all that, though, DJ, can you please remind our listeners what our spoiler policy is up here on the old cast of cause? Before you open those doors and find out that those goats aren't going to carry you anywhere, uh, we will let you know (laughs) that the spoiler is coming so that you don't have to be surprised by little worms crawling in animals' eyes. Man, back-to-back chapters with upsetting dead animal stuff, huh? I know, right? I, uh, I, that one, like, I wasn't quite expecting, but then, like, when it happened, you're like, oh, yeah, of course, duh. Like, why did I not expect that? Yeah. I mean, I didn't even know she had goats. Yeah. Well, I mean, she's a pet owner, and, like, her cat's not doing so well, and, like, her snake's not doing so well. <laughs> you know, That's true. Yeah. The snake not is not so doing well. so well. That's true. Oh, man. Where, yeah. Where did we leave off? Um, so basically the gang had like sort of put some plans together unbeknownst to them. Uh, the big coffin hunters also put some plans together and never the two plans shall be aligned. And Mm. so we know that, uh, they suspect people are coming at one point and those people are planning to come at another point that does not match up with what they expected. Um, we also know that Susan and Shimi have some uh, hidden fireworks for a possible big party that's coming down the road mm-hmm, and uh mm-hmm. and the cut end scene uh yes. oh except for shimi gets a kiss oh shimi oh shimi i love shimi so much <laughs> so uh cut to black fade in with uh um someone sleeping in their bed and um so he tickles him wakes him up he uh he wakes up and he's a little confused, uh, realizes that, like, it's the end time. And then we get this uh, little, like, aside that uh, Reimer had called him um, this Mon- Monsanto. Cy- or- Monsanto. Simanto. <laughs> That's hilarious. Simanto. Yeah, not Monsanto. Not the evil corn corporation, the other one. Mm-hmm. Um, and apparently this means, like, a, a, a sideways man or, like, at an a angle. Bender. Uh, bender yeah and yeah. so like 
basically call them like gay, I guess. Yeah. It's and, like slang for a homosexual essentially. Yeah, and so this is like so offensive to him that he wanted to pay him back with this uh <laughs> with this moment right here. So um, he he gets a special knife from the market and then runs him through with it and like bam that's it and, and it's sort of like in the end he turns his coffin tattoo towards his face and like taunts him <laughs> with it yeah and like you won't be calling me that anymore come yeah. on say it say it you want to say it nope yeah reynolds uh needs to be a little more secure in himself i think i don't know what that's about well, yeah, I don't know. So, uh, so uh, basically, uh, that's the end of him. And okay. Then we we cut. Well, to- before we move on, let me quickly. There's a couple of little things I definitely want to touch in on this section, which is that once again, in this chapter, we are getting a ton of bird imagery. Like I don't remember, know if you remember, but last chapter, it was uh, they kept referring to different birds as the motif and that is very much covered carried over into this episode from the fact that you know he is right off the bat we have Reimer being awoken with a feeling of a feather on his cheek and uh he's really scared because we find out he's scared of birds and he doesn't like birds and he doesn't like bugs and when he when he wakes up obviously Reynolds is there and they he, when he kills him he doesn't just stab him he literally pins him to the bed with this long knife that leaves him essentially pinned to the bed like a bug yeah, I what? thought he called him a bed bug at the end. A bed bug. Yep, yep, yep. That's followed up by actually another bird visual where after he stabbed him and the lantern has rolled away, uh, Reynolds shadow is kind of over Reimer and it's described as looking like a vulture. So we've been hearing about a lot of birds, but now our first reference to the big coffin hunters, they're basically being described as these like vultures or carrion birds. It's not even like an eagle or anything cool. They're just like a a vulture, which I think is very telling and kind of tells us a little bit about the big coffin hunters. I didn't pick up on that. So that's a good catch there. Um, The bed bug thing I thought was a little weird. And like, I mean, you pin him to the wall, but, like, where did the whole bed bug thing come from? I don't know. I... I mean, I think he just, like, well, there was the thing about how he hates birds and he hates bats and he hates bugs. Ah, and so okay. then he ends up getting stuck to the bed like a bed bug, which, uh, I mean, it's a little thing. But I think more importantly is all the feather stuff. Yeah, like you said, we also get a little character moment here with Reynolds, you know, getting his petty revenge over being called Simanto, which he took to be a gay joke, which tells you, like I said, he needs to be a little more secure in himself. But also we get a little detail about Reimer here where it never Reimer to Reimer. He has no idea that this is slang. He just thinks of it as, you know, Mr. Cloak, essentially. And what that kind of tells us here is for all of the sort of worldly errors and self-importance that Reimer puts on himself, he actually is someone who's a little bit of a country bumpkin, which uh, (laughs) does not do well for him. Although, I mean, you know, it's not like Reynolds needed a reason to kill him, but still. No, they just do that for funsies. Yeah. Okay, so we cut to black again, and uh, we are still at night, and we wake up to uh, Thorin, crackly bones and all, Mm -hmm. who just had like a terrifying dream of this bird that he owned and also released into his neighborhood that is wreaking havoc and also his responsibility, and... (laughs) And he wakes up and he's like, I think this the little slang thing he said is like, uh, when we're this close to reaping day, like it, it's okay for a man to jump a few fences. And so he reaches over and like grabs a drink of his favorite drink. Little did he know it was the last alcoholic beverage he'll have in this world. 
<laughs> and then, bam, he gets it too. And uh, DePape is basically like, I hate those crackly bones and your, your noise. And like, as he's stabbing him with like, obviously, a well, not obviously, uh, a less practical knife, a, a less sharp knife, a less exciting knife than uh, what Reimer got, got the end with. He kicks out the the bird skull, and Thorin like looks at it, and in his last moments alive is like bird, 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 and DePape is like, yeah, that's very astute of you to <laughs> to notice, which is <laughs> strange. And then like he immediately is like and takes out both of his eyes, and, and you're like, oh well, that's that's different, I guess. Like, well, yeah. But I mean, like, what was the, that? Was the part I was? I, I didn't really think about the bird as much, but I was thinking about the eyeballs. Like, why? What, what was the significance of like taking his eyes out? I mean, I was gonna kind of ask you the same thing as I wasn't sure because not only did he cut out his eyes, he drew the sigil. Uh, he drew Farson's sigil, which we know is the King Crimson King's eye. Well, that one makes sense though, because um, they were gonna try and frame the boys as being mm-hmm. in cahoots with the Crimson King. But the eye portion, I guess. Maybe, well, I was wondering if they're linked. Is like my you cut the, cut his eyes out and then draw an eye in him, so now we can see the, the real thing. I or it know. could just be the papes just kind of taking some liberties with it. Maybe he wanted to make him look like the rook skull that he leaves in his lap. I'm not really sure, except for that. What it does is it visually reminds us that this is literally exactly what. Coral Thorn had dreamt of the night before that her she'd saw her husband like covered in blood with his eyes cut out and a rook and a bird skull in his lap. Oh yeah, yeah, you're so right. So it's just kind of I think maybe more a detail to let us know that what she dreamt actually came true. Hmm. Yeah. So and also the section opens with Rhyme, or sorry Thorin having a bit of a prophetic dream himself. In Coral's case, it was obviously his fate very accurately, and, but it was also about sort of this coming fate to to the barony and does have that same kind of dream where again uh, this time it's not um a rock that's flying over the the town and like turning everything to blood it is this big pink-eyed bird that wherever its shadow lies the world turns into a wasteland and and so again i think it's sort of reinforcing the rot that is going to begin that is beginning here and in this case he also kind of has this moment of realization that this is partly his fault. Like this, the bird is his fault and as are the people that are going to be inf- affected by this. You see there's like the sort of this humanizing moment where he like has some regret about it, but immediately he compartmentalizes it, has a drink and starts thinking about like, well, whatever, I'll be too busy having sex with Susan to really care about this anyway. <laughs> so then when he goes down, you're like, oh, well, too bad for you. But yeah, the pink eyes is an interesting detail because of course it made me think of the wizard's glass. What about you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, now that you pointed it out, I, I think about it, but because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm bad at that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, I thought the bird was a little weird because um, when he refers to it, he refers to it as like it's his bird, which yeah, which like it means that like he sort of the way I took that to mean is that he brought destruction on the town, yeah, exactly. But also, like he uh, loves the towns and like. He kind of loves the bird as well. <laughs> so it's I like, mean, I think he's like, it's my it's my burden, my my shame to bear that I, I, I it's my responsibility. I did this. 
Okay. It's kind of how I took it. Cause at first he's like, Oh, this is, these are my people. And he's like, but it's also my bird. Like I love these people, but I also did this to them. And that's what I mean, where he had like a moment of guilt and shame about what he chose to do. But immediately his mind goes immediately back to having sex with Susan. He is the creepiest dude. <laughs> <laughs> he really is so gross. I, I like when DePape comes out from behind the thing and is just like, I hate it when you do that. When he's cracking his knuckles, I was like voice of the audience. The other thing I wanted to know is, so we have these two characters having these prophetic dreams, like right before this is about to go down. What do you think? Is there some part of this where like Ka was being like last chance to resolve this? Or is it just, I don't know. What do you think? What is the purpose of them both having these prophetic dreams the night before he's murdered? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I kind of just thought it was sort of like a little bit of shine in all of these folks knowing that they have sort of, um, made their own bed and are end up laying in it so to speak uh i don't know the with his wife though her having that like nightmare and then not telling him that could have been the difference between uh him surviving and him not surviving Mm -hmm. and then also her ignoring that for her love and like at the same time him sort of ignoring his dream for his lust and Mm -hmm. that's sort of like is a, a domino effect i suppose like each person like looking past the thing that should obviously set flags of flare for yeah. another thing that's ahead of them that they'll never reach because they uh you know um ignored ka i suppose right i mean ka is interesting in this chapter it kind of feels like you can really see how much of a thumb on the scale that Ka has throughout this. So that's, I guess, maybe why I was curious, like, why even give them this information? So a lot of times when something like this happens in books I've read in the past, it's like to make you feel a little bit more about the incidents that happened because, like, it becomes more of a tragedy when you know it's coming and you didn't stop it. Yeah, yeah, that's probably And so, like, as gravitas, I suppose, is the fancy term for that. I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> i wish I, I wish i yeah i'd be like i don't i don't i, I don't have anything deeper than that on this one sorry no no you out there listeners have uh, a deeper insight on that let, let us know or if you think i'm crazy that's that's cool too um, i mean por que no los dos <laughs> no <laughs> why not both <laughs> oh, i should have known that one i do actually know you said it fast in my foggy brain. Oh, sorry. Okay. All uh, right. That's okay. Okay. So uh, we move on. Um, so th- the sheriff and uh, Fran Langle with his machine gun are mm-hmm. uh, following a plan they got uh, from Jonas to to like sneak up on the boys. Um, Jonas, of course, had almost zero faith that they would make it through this event and that the boys would be up for the the task and uh these guys like roll up sheriff avery's kind of like commanding the guys to go this way and that way and like sort of getting them all there and then when it comes to the critical part of like placement and actual execution of the plan he sort of like backs away and lets fran with his machine gun take over and fran like makes this little simple speech like i've been told the plan it is a good plan i will not question it you go here you go there (laughs) You go there, get up on top of that rooftop over there, you know? Mm-hmm. And, like, all the layout for this is fun because he, he's basically putting them in all these spots so that they can castle these young pups. And mm-hmm. then 
those guys just like wake up and they're like, look, there's a bear in the air. I see, I see him up there. Yeah. And like, and, and like, oh, the horse, he's, he's a little spooked. Uh, probably just a spider, right? You know, spiders spook the horse. That's a thing that happens. And, mm-hmm. and like, no, uh, no insight into these guys surrounding them or anything. And the reason I was kind of digging in on that is it sort of felt like their tie to feeling those sorts of intuition is more towards like people that actually mean them harm as opposed to people that are just kind of following orders. Oh, interesting. And so if you think about these guys, like even when Roland has that momentary conversation with the deputies, like, you know, he's like, I wouldn't expect you to be here. And he's like, you know, and the deputy is like, I wouldn't expect you to be a murderer, but, you know, I wish you'd have got it done earlier <laughs> if you're going to do it. Right. And so, like, that pathetic conversation is like, well, wait a minute. Um, maybe they didn't sense any of these folks because none of them, like, intentionally meant harm to any of them. They were just kind of, like, oh. going through the paces. Uh, I don't know. Am I, I wrong? I, I mean, I think insightful. they fully intend to i mean because he says don't kill them if you don't have to because i want the townspeople to do it so i think they all know maybe they don't all know all the details of what went into the killing of thorin and reimer but they have suspicions and they do know that these they're basically taking them somewhere where the townsfolk turn into a mob and kill them my interpretation more is more just cause very fickle. Ka ha- has its own agenda that has nothing to do with being on the side of anyone except for, you know, cause. So sometimes Rowan cause on their side. Roland will spot Jonas alone by himself up hiding in the grass. And Elaine will be able to sense them with his touch from miles away while, you know, dealing with horses on the drop. And then another time, there can be eight men who are relatively untrained every surrounding them. And Roland is distracted and in his head thinking about Susan. Elaine doesn't get a bit of the touch. Cuthbert is Cuthbert. But <laughs> it, it just, the the whim of Ka is very unreliable and also very impactful. So I, I one of the things I think kind of underscores this is if you think about what Roland is thinking about at the time when this all goes down, is he's thinking about that conversation he had with Susan where she's just like, oh, greedy Ka, talking essentially about how unfair Ka is and how they can't really bend it to its will. And then he gets snatched. So, so yeah, I think it's more, I don't know if Ka is just sort of putting him in a place where it can enact the whatever needs to happen in order to basically put him in a position to be able to do what Ka wants but I definitely feel like fate is very Ka or fate is very much on the side of Fran Lingle and his men right now and Jonas and his men right now well yeah I suppose um we kind of already know and this is no spoiler that like things are gonna go sideways for these guys and like Ka is part of that process so Heck, right. why not? Yeah, I don't know. Well, I mean, uh, just think about how easily Fransman gets the drop on them. You know what I mean? Like That's the it, part. So, like, I was almost uh, waiting for that, like, aha moment where, like, Roland and the gang are like, and we played it this way. <laughs> oh. Nope. And it's, you're that, like. That's what I mean. It was like, it's smooth the way they get him, the way they play Elaine or Cuthbert and Elaine off each other. Like, all of that happens so easily. I can't help but feel fate kind of turned itself on him. 
Yeah, so uh, speaking of which, uh, I didn't quite get to it. It's really important that we do. Is like at first, um, Roland like throws some insults about, mm-hmm. and then he has his own final bit of intuition when he like he. Uh, oh yeah, We're, you're getting ahead of us a oh, little bit. Okay, but, okay. I mean, that's the next section. I just want to say he has that confrontation with Fran Lingle here. I think is interesting. He kind of he's like, "How can you do this to your home place?" And then says something kind of like crude to him, and Fran Lingle's like, "Whatever." But Kuzbert actually. You know, his insult hits home. Yes, when he basically says, you've gotten the face of your father. And I thought that was interesting because it it kind of speaks to the lingering power of, like, old beliefs in this area. Like, on one hand, he's essentially in a barn full of insurrectionists, people Mm -hmm. who no longer believe in the affiliation that are siding with the, the, the... the good man or whatever. But when he accuses him of forgetting the face of his father, like that really stings for Fran. So I don't know. So that one, like if we bounce around just a little bit and I'm sorry, this is way ahead, but um, when you get the perspective of Rhea, like sort of explaining like, Oh, they're just men out there. You don't hear anybody say, forgot the face of my mother. (laughs) Right. And so that like weird little, little kickback to this section here is sort of the like, yeah, actually, the most important part is forgetting the face of your father to these guys. You know, like that's the that's the cornerstone of their civilization, and that's how the men of this area think. Like the men are the most important. So if you've forgotten your face of your father, that's a horrible. That's true. Insult. That's true. Whereas if like are you are you would you do this to your own mother? You know, like I think did Roland like infer that he would sleep with his own mother that way or something like yeah, that? Like, yeah. And like he's like whatevs, you know. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, there's something very patriarchal in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got a point there. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, So basically, uh, these guys, like, they have their little exchange. Uh, Oh, can I tell you one kind of fun, one tiny little detail? I forgot to tell you this. It's just like a fun language thing where they put the cuffs on them and they're called esposas. Now, you spoke a little Spanish. Esposas. Esposas. Yeah. Esposas is what they call handcuffs in this, but esposas is actually a Spanish word, which means spouse. Oh, <laughs> so it's like the old ball and chain, essentially. <laughs> That's actually pretty funny, right? Um, <laughs> and that actually goes with the theme of like, yeah. Anyway, um, yep. Okay, sorry. That's oh all. no, that's good. Like I, the my Spanish, like I took Spanish for five years, and then it spent, goes, it goes fast. I, I spent uh, six months in Spain. And I learned more Spanish in six months in Spain than I did my entire life. Yeah. And then it went just as fast as it came. Oh, doesn't that suck? I know. I, yeah, Maybe I it'll wish, come like, back, though. Maybe there's, like, muscle memory that if you go to Spain, like, it'll come back just as fast. All right. So moving on, like, uh, basically they handcuff the guys, um, pop them on horses, and they kind of ride them back into town. Uh, the, Rusher has Roland on the back of it. So, like, he's, he's still got his horse. Um, and they're kind of bouncing them around a little bit on these. And as they're going, um, Roland, uh, sees Jonas and like, has this moment where he like looks at him and he, well, I'm jumping ahead. So before he looks at him and insults him, like, uh, Jonas tells him to check him for weapons. They have this little diatribe about, um, the redheaded guy and like, uh, making sure to get Cuthbert's slingshot and you know any other knives and weapons on them and sort of disarm them completely uh and then like roland like sort of looks at him and then realizes in a second like has this uh, epiphany he's like uh 
who sent you west, you know? And it's like, mm-hmm. well, you're a little old, so it couldn't be Court. Was it Court's father? And then, like, that slap of knowing that he's, like, outing him as a gunslinger that didn't make it and was sent west is yeah. something that he's, like, kind of kept under his hat. And now Jonas knows that everybody around him knows it as well. And there's mm-hmm. this split second where Stephen King describes um, Roland as even forgetting about uh, Susan and being right. like, well, if this is how I die, you know, that's fine. I'm okay with this. Yeah. And Jonas is about ready to kill him for this insult and finally resists the urge to shoot him, but mm-hmm. makes some kind of, and I think this is a cowboy slang that I'm not 100% miller, or familiar with. He's like, I got a two pound weight on a three pound trigger. I, the writing, you know what? I love it when, um, it's the same thing that happened when they were having that face off in the Traveler's Inn where, you get into that, like Stephen King is having a ton of fun with super westerny dialogue. Right? Oh, it's so good. And that line particularly stood out to me too. The two pounds of pressure on a three pound trigger. I was like, ooh, Stephen King's having a good time. I was just picturing <laughs> like a Clint Eastwood seed with like, you know, the hat tipped and the like shadow over the eyes and like a piece of grass hanging out of the side of your mouth that you've been chewing on and like your gun kind of like lazily drawn. The other one I loved is the, uh, we both know you're going to ride the handsome is another just like, yeah. it doesn't really mean anything, but you know exactly what it means. And it's just so like Westerny sounding. It's so, I, I feel like he really, really found voices for each of these characters. Jonas has such a distinct voice and it's part of what makes these interactions between him and Roland so much fun. And Cuthbert as well is another one who just really has a very distinct clear voice that makes their banter and i I wish there was actually more face-offs between roland and jonas i'm guessing there's got to be at least one more by the book closes out but some of my absolute favorite moments are just them talking shit to each other (laughs) and playing these little games it's because because i think it's stephen king is having so much fun writing this dialogue really feels like he's in conversation with these characters in a way that it's just really really fun there's a great line from Keith Burt where he's like, if I'd have shot his head off, he wouldn't have missed it. But if I'd have taken his balls off, he would have. I know. He's and like, a, Jonas doesn't dick. like, he's, Jonas is like, probably right on that one, partner. Yeah. You know, it's like, what? That's what I mean. This weird tension of, I don't know, respect and also adversary, like adversarial weird tension. Weird bar, bar yeah. arguments. I love it. I really, really, really love it. This section here is one of my favorites in the book so far. Just this little, I actually found myself listening to it multiple times just because I really loved all of the the language here. And also, you know, we've watched Roland really struggle this book and be distracted and not be himself in many ways. And this is one of those moments where you're like, oh, I recognize this Roland where he's on his game again. And this, you know, he doesn't have his guns, but he uses his words as weapons and his aim is true. It starts with Jonas just sort of sitting astride his horse savoring his victory at castles being very patronizing with a like good game for a little kid kind of conversation (laughs) yeah for someone fresh off the off the milk of the teat yes exactly he's so arrogant and just so full of hubris and so when Roland just completely sucker punches him with this information it really really hits home and is so satisfying as a reader who's just watched our heroes get clapped and ironed so easily and not even have a chance to fight back so but okay so there's of course some bird 
allusions to this so of course we have to talk about it so i i I grabbed a section of the and i'm just going to read it to you it says and suddenly roland knew something with all his best and truest intuitions it came from nowhere and everywhere absent one second and they're fully dressed the next who sent you west maggot he asked as he passed jonas couldn't have been court you're too old was it his father the look of slightly bored amusement left jonas's face flew from his face as as if slapped away for one amazing moment the man with white hair was a child again shocked shamed and hurt so of course we have the slightly bored amusement flew from his face another bird that at all so like uh that you got me there yes and so this whole interaction is really great and like you said jonas loses it and is like on the verge of killing them and fran lingle chimes in and says Jonas, don't be a fool, Langle snarled. You ain't killing him after we took all this time to, and risk to hood him and tie their hooks, are you? So what he's actually talking about is the how you control like a raptor bird, right? You cover their hoods and you tie their, their claws. Oh, is that? Okay, I thought that was some sort of like roping steers reference. No, no. I mean, it, it could be as well, but I think that's a reference essentially to it's another bird reference. And in this case, if you think about when we heard about Reynolds, he was a vulture. The metaphor that's used about them is that they are hawks. They're raptors. They're birds of prey. So it's just a it's a small little point of comparison, very subtle use of metaphor that I thought was pretty great. So there's one other thing um, I, I wanted to point out in here, too, before we move on. And, and I don't want to interrupt you, too, if you have some more stuff to point out. But while I One other remember, thing, but you go, please. Yes. Because my brain is not as good as normal today. Oh, is there's a there's a moment when when uh, Jonas draws his gun mm-hmm. and everybody in the crowd is ex- impressed except for Roland, whose eyes are fast enough to see it coming. Yes. And so when I heard that, I was I, I stopped and paused and thought about it for a minute. I'm like, well. So Roland like actually made it through his battle with court and like became either an apprentice gunslinger or whatever title he gained from there. A full gunslinger. Yeah. Or, yeah. Full. So full gunslinger. And Jonas was, you know, sent West. So it was kind of like a interesting juxtaposition at the moment where a gunslinger that was sent West is basically impressive to everybody except for an actual gunslinger. Yep, exactly, exactly. And so that like that's almost insult to injury. And Ooh, then the yeah. fact that um, Roland is like a young person, he just gotten the uh, um, the teat remark, and then yeah. yet he was able to like basically use what would be you know a court an older man's um, you know reference to a younger man. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, a boss to a, a underling or something like that. You yeah. maggot. Well, that's like right out of Court's mouth. Court's the older one training these boys. Yeah. And so, it, you know, his dad said the same shit, too. You know, yep, that's where exactly. Court got it. Yeah. 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 And yeah. So all those things, like, and then uh, Roland says something like, um, you've, you've lived too long or something like that. Yeah. You've lived too young, old, long, old man. Yeah. This is yeah. when, this is when Jonas is still thinking that he is the Mr. Arrogant thinks he has the upper hands here. Yeah. So all those things are just like a, they pile on to this point where, when Roland like calls him out and then like, he even has this moment where he's like thinking in, in his head about, Oh no, the whole town's going to know. And yes. you know, everybody's going to know. <laughs> and then, I forget what the insult is, but Roland like throws one last on him and um, Jonas has to come back with like, but your bones will be rusting in the ground far before mine. Yes. But it doesn't really sting, sting true to him. No. 
Shoot, exile. Shoot, worm. Shoot, you failure. You'll still live in exile and die where you lived. Oh, so good. It's so good. Oh, I love it. Yeah, he totally infantilizes Jonas and completely turns the situation on his head in a way that, like I said, is so, so, so satisfying. And what's interesting is that Roland's words really do make Jonas vulnerable, despite the fact that and despite the fact that Roland is in handcuffs, being taken away, presumably to a fiery death, you still get the sense that in this interaction, he definitely got the better of Jonas. And he found, like, his true um, point of vulnerability. And and that's why those words just cut so deeply. And as we move into the next section, he is completely rattled by them. Like, Every, he thought he was in control, cool, calm, collected, arrogant, and he is completely thrown off his game by these words. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, I just love the section because, like I said, it's the Roland that we knew and love. He's got his instincts back. He is behaving with sort of, you know, righteous indig- indignance. All of his gunslingeriness is happening here, for lack of a better word. And there's just something so delicious about knowing that no matter how much Jonas has built himself up, built his reputation, the fact is that he will never achieve what Roland has at age 14 and that that wound cuts deeper than anything else for for Jonas. (laughs) There's no shit talking that could get him as well. There's like even facing off physically this is the truest wound that he can inflict is pretty satisfying, which you see going into this next section. <laughs> How'd you like that transition? Pretty good, right? That was good. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I see what you did there. Mm-hmm. The uh, apprentice becomes the trainer. That's right, maggot. Next section. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so they tote these guys off uh, down the road and like, Jonas, who has a, a better idea what weapons these guys are hiding, because of course he's you know been to their their little bunk. He uh, he uh, uh, goes in there, and like that gunslinger thing is still sing- stinging in the back of his mind. Oh yeah, and you remember that um, when he opened up their little cubby and found it on the floor the first time, he almost like pooped himself when he saw that yes. third pair of g- guns and was like thinking about him and wondering if they were they were the nice like gunslinger guns with the sandalwood grip and they weren't right. quite as nice as a gunslinger's gun but they were far nicer than the trainee guns that were in there and what we find out is that uh two of those sets of guns are in there but the third set the nicer set is gone mm-hmm. and he's so upset by by this whole situation and what's going on that he grabs the guns like undresses them there and then throws the parts as hard as he can out into the field um to try like part of it's like a metaphor for his shame Mm -hmm. and wanting to get it as far away from him as possible but part of it's just like he's so pissed off right now that everybody in town is gonna know his secret and that he's a failed gunslinger and this yeah the shame of this like before he got his tattoo is like a uh coffin hunter or regulator or whatever like that was the badge he wore to like make himself a proud you know strong man but big himself up yeah uh yeah now that you realize that he's saddled up from like what would have been a much higher calling down to where he's at now it shames him in such a way that otherwise was hidden from everybody else even like his own gang members didn't realize that he'd fallen like this and and that just breaks him and that's funny because like roland (laughs) 
even though he didn't get the the drop on him, got the drop on him. He sure did. That's why I said I feel like you definitely felt like he came away the victor, which is great when the whole purpose of Jonas being there was to gloat. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think there's if there's any question that what he said hit home, it it, this scene really shows it to you because he's not only furious, he's actually pretty freaking reckless. So like you said, he's mortified. We find out people in his life don't even know exactly his past because he's he's hit it for and been terrified for people to know the truth and as a result he starts wreck maybe not reckless but at least wasteful instead of keeping the guns despite the fact that we know that they're better than any of the shitty guns that these people have around Mm -hmm. him he tears them apart and just throws them places it just shows you how deep those words cut that he went from being super calm and collected to reacting kind of emotionally irrationally and his response is to just become spiteful and have impotent rage so i mean i think that bodes well as we go throughout this chapter this continues to be a little bit of a problem he's not able to shake this off in a way like he is truly rattled by having that his shame shoved in his face that way and that now everyone around him is going to know. Ooh, it's so spicy. I love it. I love it. <laughs> poor guy. Well, not poor guy. Not poor guy. I mean, also, poor, there's a part of me that has a soft spot for Jonas, just because I think he's such a great villain, and he's such a real well-realized character. That, it, And that's something that Stephen King does really well, is he makes these villains feel like real people with real motivations. Like, you don't like them because they're maybe their motivations are shit or the things that they do are cruel or the fact that they're just in opposition to the characters that we care about. But you can't say you don't understand them. You know what I mean? They're not just like twirling their mustaches and evil for the sake of it. They're not like a Marvel MCU villain, (laughs) right? Like they're not. So it's not Ultron. You know what I mean? They're like real people and you can kind of, there's pathos to them. And so I do, I do have an affection for Jonas, even though I do want to see him eat it that's that's funny um so then uh again we cut to black and back back in the morning like i i guess all of this has sort of gone through the night and into the morning with the murders uh we cut to susan being shaken she's like uh in a deep sleep in this big comfortable Mm -hmm. fancy room slash bed in thorin's mansion and maria is shaking her like crazy she almost falls asleep wakes back up again uh because maria is insistent we find out that i guess susan sleeps in the buff yeah yeah that's that's actually a really cool detail that it just tells you like nothing about seafront is comfortable to her even down to a silk nightgown she can't sleep when she's sort of in the you know yeah it's like bunching up in her back and she ends up having to like just yank it off because it's making her so uncomfortable it's just totally unnatural to her yeah mm-hmm. yep and then as she's waking up she realizes that there's a lot more noise in this place than she's normally used to usually it's just like a horse being let out or some some farmers milling about or whatever but in this case like there's a lot of commotion downstairs and she puts two and two together uh maria gets her up basically starts to tell her like that thorin is dead and then that rhymer is dead also, that the boys might come for her, not realizing that she has a connection with the boys. She almost uh, mentions that this wasn't part of the plan uh-huh. to Maria. Uh-huh. And uh, there, there's this fun little bit, and I got to back up for a second, where they're describing Maria. Yeah. And, like, Maria's, like, I guess she's so well-kept 100% of the time. 
that that Susan couldn't even imagine her being ruffled up unless an earthquake had come through. Uh-huh. And that sort of like sets the gravitas for the number of events. And, and then she basically is like, everybody's gone loco around here and like, everything's crazy. You need to leave through the back door. And when Susan refuses the first time, like she'd bared a little bit of skin and pulls uh, the blanket all the way up to her eyes. And Maria just like yanks it down to her ankles. Like, no, <laughs> yeah. Like, get up! <laughs> get up and get out of here. Yeah. And, and so this reveal is basically, like, Susan wanting to know if the, the if Roland is dead or alive. And uh, at that point, Maria basically tells her, like, he's alive for now. Right. Right. Yeah. Um. I mean, there's not really much other than in this section, aside from that right away Susan understands what... The, they have planned for them like she makes the connection like oh my god it's reap day fires she's on it and she springs into action and i guess just kind of like the only question is what is she gonna do what is this gonna mean like she's supposed to be staying out of the line of fire and now she's about to put herself into it which is worrying so we move on uh jonas is basically rolling back up to where they've got the tankers hidden away and the gang that was out there to protect him um he uh reynolds recognizes right away that like he's in a mood yeah he's like all right Pape, shut your stupid mouth this is not the time for you to be dumbass to pape jonas is in a dark mood and we find out that this is not the first time that reynolds has seen him like this and uh he's dangerous when he's in this kind of mood yeah and so uh Pape still can't help himself he like asks him a, a question anyway yeah. And he's like, you doing okay, you know? Hey, buddy, you doing okay? And, it's like, he's basically like, what's going on with this? And, like, pushes through. He wants to know um, what the plan is, like, what, what Latigo's boys are up to. And that basically, like, starts ripping into them as, like, underlings who are more likely to scare away, um, you know, wildlife on the prairie plains than to actually be of any use and that they'll be babysitting them as they move through this and 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 then they're like okay and now we gotta go get the ball yeah and um you got two stars here so uh i didn't have a lot to talk about other than latigo's boys seem like a bunch of not either he's just really mad and calling them fuck-ups or like they are just as bad as like he imagined from the get-go of just being like whatever they could find yeah i mean there's not a ton here i would say obviously it's interesting to see a little bit more of their dynamic you know that reynolds actually knows jonas better than DePape does and DePape is very very desperate for jonas's approval you know they're the, it's a much more paternalistic dynamic between the two of them where you know he he's really trying to please jonas and like looking down and is very subservient to jonas where Reynolds is a little bit, knows how to play him a little better and give him the space. The other thing is, is just, just, I mean, again, the continued effect that that conversation is having on him. You know, we've seen Jonas in a few different movies, confident, annoyed, ang- even angry when Roland gets the drop on him at the Traveler's End. But this is a different Jonas. He's broody. He's sort of morose. He's unpredictable. He's not it- thinking as heavily about the game. 
no maybe he wasn't the first to put his head up around the pillow but whatever you know this this has kind of unmoored him in a way and i think it makes him very dangerous to both his friends and his foes alike but it also means he's not on his castle's game i don't think i mean we get him a little bit back at the end of this chapter like he's definitely back in more of a uh, strategic place but i don't know if that will be the case when he comes across Roland again. I'm looking, I'm very interested to see what that dynamic is like when they're reunited. So there's one other thing before we move on that I wanted to underline on this. And that's the, um, the fact that we sort of find out inadvertently that these guys are planning on being out of town. Cause Jonas, like in his anger is sort of like thinking to himself, like, he regrets that they have to leave Hambry because he'd love to take a torch and be the first one to lay it at the feet of, of Roland. Yeah. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so that foreshadowing, like that means something and it goes along with what you were saying about like his castle game is off. Right. And that is, you're right. That's a good point. Like we find out a little bit more details about what they have planned. Like I assumed at this point, like because they wanted revenge so bad that they would definitely be in town for whenever this goes down, but they don't even plan on staying for reap which is interesting and new information, I think. Yeah, and it makes it seem like uh, they feel like they're, I mean, even though he's lost mental battle, he's won overall, and his plans are on on chart and ready to go. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. And then we get to Syria. Oh, my God. Uh, Stephen so, King. This oh, is the most weird Stephen King part of this whole book. Yeah, this felt Can almost like... we just like, have a um, weird sex scene instead? <laughs> <laughs> this uh so have you ever um watched that movie um shoot uh it's uh the author is like also like seeing his uh writing come to life and it's like uh, do you read sutter kane um it is is it no. mouth of madness mouth of madness yes yeah. yes uh-huh okay so this felt like a scene out of mouth of madness like Rhea, yeah yeah I Rhea's mean... like watching this lady uh Teresa, who's like a well-to-do, um, you know, rug slash like jewelry slash like trinkets salesperson. Her family has like a good business and a nice house, and she has three kids. And only the youngest one suspects that there may be a small amount of madness uh-huh. in their mother. And her mother is like looking around the house, trying to figure out a way to get the kid out. And finally, the the one kid that's still in the house right now and not out doing other things, uh, she gives her a pie and sends her to a faraway neighbor so that she has some time alone in the house. And yeah. as soon as she feels comfortable that the 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 kid is like down the hill and a ways away, she unrobes like. A, Pulls up her, her her bottoms. I assume they're, like, knickers or something like that. Uh-huh. Um, and then, like, proceeds to, like, basically get down on her hands and knees and lick the corners of every portion of her house. Yeah. And, like, Stephen King paints this picture of her doing it to the point where she gets splinters in her tongue and has to yeah. spit them out in the wash basin. And the whole time we're also seeing the perspective of Rhea, who is, like, yeah, hurry up. Come on. Hurry up. Do it. Do it. And like Rhea at this point is so close with the crystal ball that it's like it's basically like she's completely uh, uh, engrossed in it. She can smell yeah. the room, like feel like she's in the cottage. She's right there with uh, Teresa, like as she's getting down on her hands and knees and like excited for the moment when one day she'll go too far and her kids will roll in and yeah. see her like half naked licking the corners of her cottage 
man, where does Stephen King come up with this stuff? But you're right. It also reminded me a little bit of like whenever he does his sort of small town horror and everybody has these dark secrets, like needful things or under the dome. Just anytime you have these. Yeah, there's something like a regular person that like when everybody goes away. Yeah. They do some strange stuff. Yeah. Uh. Yeah, I I wonder like these are those moments where I'm just like Stephen King's mind, dude. Like, what is going on up there? There's a great scene in um in the Mouth of Madness where it's that one older lady that's in a ton of horror and uh, mm-hmm. even some Stephen King stuff from like the 90s and 80s. Uh huh. And she's at the counter, um, like checking people into this hotel. Oh, and then they like pan yes. down. Yes. And like she's got her husband in chains. And he's like cowering in the corner and she's like yes. just doing this sweet old lady. And yes. that's what I was imagining when I was when I was reading this is like, whoa, this is that kind of creepy, you know? Yes, you're totally right. God, Mouth of Madness is such a good movie. Yeah, I might have to go back and rewatch that. Yeah, it's, it's like been that. a few years, but I need to I need to go back to it. I love I mean, I love that whole Carpenter uh what is that Apocalypse trilogy is so good. We um we we were we were in um, Steamboat Springs, Colorado. And like uh-huh. we walked into a coffee shop, and what's his name? The dark-haired dude was just sitting there. Uh, and, Jürgen Prochnow? Uh The main guy for he was also like in Jurassic Park and all that stuff. Um, oh, like, Sam Neil. Yeah, Sam Neil. He's oh, just like sitting there cool. having a coffee, and um, I, I I didn't know what else to say. I like looked over, I looked again, I looked again, and he kind of like you, looked up at me, and did I was you say like. It? I'm like, do you read Sutter Kane? You <laughs> he just kind of smiled yes! from ear to ear and like gave me the head nod. And then like, I'm like, that was as good as it gets. So I'm going to like give that is amazing. And you're just like, yes, yes. You know, like it's one of those things where you're like, after the fact, you're like, shit, I wish I had thought to say that you thought of it in the moment and you said it. <laughs> There's uh, Call was usually... on your side. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so uh, Rhea uh, basically is looking at this like horrific event of this girl like just licking the corners of her house, and then the ball goes blank. Oof. And, and so Rhea's like sitting there, like she sort of shakes it a little bit, is getting a little panicky, and then she looks around and listens and realizes that her horses are approaching. And then she listens a minute more and realizes that they're not approaching, that they're already there. And this is an interesting little bit. She picks up the ball and it still has a little bit of glow to it. And then Uh as she gets outside to like, see that these guys are there, the ball goes completely dark. Yep. And then (laughs) that's when we get this picture painted of Rhea. Yeah. And she's a hot mess. She's um, like screaming, like inhumanly inside her cave. Yep, she's a uh, she's she hugs the ball against what used to be her breasts that are now just flabby bits of skin. Her hair is mostly gone. Her her eyes are sunken in. She's skeleton thin, and this ball that she'd been carrying around normally is almost too much for her when she waggles it around and has to like cup it to her chest again to, to hold on to it and there's a there's a, a a thing that stephen king does here where like um as jonas calls to to Rhea, she's a, about to like step out and he's like almost wants to rear his horse uh-huh. and then has to like stay his hand and there's a lot of tension here because um he's got the the guys with him on either side and he hasn't really told them like that he's taken the lead on this 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so he's afraid that they're, one of them is going to step out of bounds and just like cock off and shoot her. And Rhea is also at the same time playing this game where she like sees a sharp rock. Uh-huh. And is like, I could smash this and then you won't have it. And there's, he kind of comes back to himself in this moment where like he has sweat dripping in his eye, but he keeps his hands steady and straight in front of him, um, playing the game and hoping that he can win this by pushing her in the right direction. And what ends up happening is after a little bit of banter back and forth, Rhea decides that, um, the only way this is going to work out is if, uh, she becomes the good man's, um, a seer and that they take her with him and that's what he kind of wanted because that's that's good for everybody they don't have yeah. to have a confrontation the ball is safe Rhea like brings it up and hands it to him and the moment he touches it uh what is it it's um his balls seize up yeah he feels like, like a, a like a like a flare of lust in his balls yeah exactly (laughs) and like he realizes at this moment that if he were to hold on to that ball for much longer in a month he'd end up like Rhea uh, like a a crazy person who thinks that the ball revolves around him and there's a moment too where like some of Rhea's threats are hollow in that she says like the ball will only work for her and she could curse it so it'll never work for him again and those don't ring true to me because the ball like immediately seizes on the next like lively body and is like mm, tasty. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, this, this is really interesting because there's a few cool sort of aspects to it. First of all, when she comes running out, um, Jonas right away slips into this charming, calm way of speaking to her because he recognizes that there's some people you cannot threaten and she's one of them. And mm-hmm. if you think back to the last interaction Rhea had with Roland, he did the exact opposite. He did not read the room and he handled that situation all wrong. And now not only is Rhea still alive, she's still a threat. And she's teamed up with the big coffin hunter. So it really does underscore just how poorly he played that situation that came from a place of being sort of naive and holding back from doing the thing that he ultimately knew that his father would have done and that he should do. In this case, Mercy was the wrong course of action, especially considering he thought he could threaten her. The other thing is, is we when the glass goes dark, we get a little taste of the old Rhea. And right away, she's back to her old man-hating ways. Yep, yep, yep. This is the same, I'm like, oh yes, I know you. This is the same version we met uh, at the beginning of the book, before the glass took her over. And it's kind of a reminder. It really does kind of underscore how much she has changed as a result of the ball. Mm-hmm. When she goes back to right away becoming very sly. And it's fun to kind of watch these this exchange between Rhea and Jonas because they're both very devious. They're both very manipulating. And they are both clearly working angles to get what they want. You know, she's threatening to break the glass. He's turning on the charm. And ultimately, I mean, it's, it's unclear who really got the better end of this deal or if it really was just totally mutually beneficial because not only does she get to keep the ball which is what she wants he gets the ball and is able to take it to Farson, but he also has a buffer right away when he felt the ball he could feel its seductive power and he was like "Ugh, i do not want to hold on to this so this thing can continue to eat away at ria and protect him from the, its its seductive ways so 
kind of feels like maybe he got the better end of the deal. There's a moment too where like uh when he touches the ball where like Rhea winks at him. Yeah. <laughs> with yeah. Her, like rithered old body, like Ugh. he's almost dead, and she's like, Yeah. You feel yeah. that, don't you? It could take you any time it wants. Yuck. <laughs> yeah, I love the visual too of the way that this whole chapter closes out. Um, am I getting ahead of you? Do you want to talk oh, about no, that? Oh no, no. Um so the the only other thing I wanted to mention about that is like when Rhea does hand him the ball, the other two draw on her and Jonas mm-hmm. has to stop him. Yeah. And Rhea like gets this last moment of cackling where she gets to sort of not quite boss him around, but boss him around. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> where where yeah. they're like, yeah, thought he would. Good thing he's in charge because you two would have double crossed me, and, and then yep, and she's like, eh, and I got a cart and and uh, some fine goats in the shed over there. Go fetch them. And they're like, I don't, I'm not doing that. And like, Jonas is like, well, you're you're not um, obliged to listen to her, but you are obliged to listen to me because I'm your boss. So go do what she said. Yeah, and what they find is pretty gross. <laughs> but, so cr- oh, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 you, please. Oh, so they crack open the doors. Uh, Rhea had a card in there, and the card is like this almost um, soothsayer uh, uh, carnival cart, is what I kind of imagined. Like, with mm-hmm. maybe some mystic runes on it, and like something that you would see outside of like a um, a fortune teller tent. Uh, you know something like that like it, it, it's a black cart with like some stuff on it and then they get to the goats and the goats are dead probably like a couple three or four days and it gives you the impression because you already knew about um her cat kind of basically not wanting to be around her anymore right and right. not looking so good well which i wonder is that because she's like her familiar is she is it neglect or is it because I as it was a familiar as, one yeah like, as, as, as like, she decays the yeah her... that's what i was wondering too yep and then with the goats like Rhea basically has been neglecting her own um uh survival let alone like any of the creatures in her care around her yeah to the point where like she left these goats locked in the in the barn with no Poor water goats. or food and they they succumbed the dehydration and like died and now maggots are eating them and like the only thing there is the cart and so they have to bring the cart out and then like hook it to hook it to their horse you know and like ria's like "Ah!" the whole time yes oh my gosh yeah this chapter ends with our villains all united essentially except i guess cord's still out there floating around but the the whole like mustache twirly laughter that this (laughs) this uh chapter ends on is pretty grim like usually we get the moon but because this is midday instead we just get this you know this visual of her i I pulled the quote just because it's so creepy she giggled and soon the giggle turned into a full-throated cackle she was still cackling as they drew out of the yard cackling and sitting in the little black cart with its cabalistic decorations like the queen of black places on her throne (laughs) which of course makes me think of like all those drawings of the crimson king you know except for that she's just this old crone skeletor thing with crazy hair and a (laughs) rotting snake around her neck it's very uh the picture of this is very ominous and creepy and weird and yeah it's a really great way to end out a chapter where our characters are all in a bad way i sort of imagined her and like this is a little bit off but um in one of those odyssey movies from like the 70s or 80s um they go up to the top and it's the three women 
that uh, uh share the eyeball <laughs> yeah which one is that is I that is it Clash of the Titans? The game I thought the it was like Clash sister. of the Titans, yeah. And I was kind of imagining Rhea's like devolved to that point where she's like, you know, that had Hagrid yes. and like Cackley. And those ladies played it perfectly. And then when she rides off in the distance sitting in this like black cart with runes all over it, I, I almost like imagined the, um, the Crypt Keeper's like yes cackle in the background yes she is like, like the crypt I, oh i wonder if this is a reference because creep show is a stephen king thing oh yeah yeah you're right okay yeah and so like you kind of imagine like the camera starting low as they're going off into the into the horizon and then like panning up and all you hear is like the cackling oh yeah it's really good it's so good did I ever tell you that my when I was like in my I don't know teens I didn't have insurance so my sister and I shared a pair of glasses. What? So yeah, we would be like t- we were together all the time. So like whenever she'd want me to see something that was far away, she'd like give me her glasses or whatever. And so like <laughs> Matilda used to always be like, "Give us the eyes, sister." <laughs> you guys like have the same like prescription or close just, enough. Like- close enough like i wouldn't wear her glasses all the time but you know like if to see something real quick it, it was helpful yeah when you need to do some long looking go right when you gotta do some long looking exactly you know it's mostly like we we're at a bar and there was someone cute or something she'd be like look at here, here look at this. <laughs> <laughs> all right dj what'd you think of this chapter uh, it's pretty good um a lot of stuff happened here uh, a lot of stuff got weird um i almost forgot to mention uh is there any you think there's any significance in Rhea being like i've never been to seafront and like is excited about it really puts her in sort of the in the action in a way where she's been very secluded up on that hill away from everybody now she's down in, in the action in a way that is not good hmm. yeah, yeah. I, I almost forgot about that i just wanted to ask you because i i didn't know and i thought maybe you might have like a bird thing on no this or something. no good good call but no i don't think so although cackling hmm i guess mm. it's not that's not specifically like a crow but it could be hmm Huh. Well, anyway, uh, overall, really good. Um, that that scene with uh, Rhea and watching uh, Teresa like lick the floors oh, was like disturbing. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you double back on that, and then of course, like this is an action. It's not super action packed, but it's action packed in that way that like you get a murder and then you get another murder. Yeah, and then like you get a crazy event and then like you get another crazy event and like people are sneaking up on each other. Uh, people are super angry. Like there's a lot of like wordplay back and forth it's just yeah. a it's a one of the more actiony um sections we've gone through in a while like we haven't yeah. really had this much in one thing it's usually a little more drawn out what about you rachel yeah this one is all killer no filler for sure <laughs> <laughs> this is one of the best chapters in a while i mean i i enjoy all of them but this one's really great because like you said we get right off the bat we get double double homicide followed by floor licking and our heroes and getting captured and, and all kinds yeah, of stuff i mean really truly this thing from front to front to back is just like full of if not quote-unquote action like stuff that has like really high stakes and big impact mm-hmm. and and you can feel that we're now it's we're in the end game now you know what i mean this is this is it i think it's going to be all pretty much action from here on out so so yeah this is a great chapter i really enjoyed it, it went by super super fast um and I'm very, very excited slash nervous to see what happens next. So, yeah, 
Speaking of next, if you are reading along with us, our plan for the next episode is to cover Wizard and Glass Part 3, Come Reap, Chapter 8. Oh, this is not a great title. The Ashes. <laughs> yeah, this does not sound good. So yeah, we're going to do The Ashes. Yeah, oh, uh, that title, like, we already know that, like, fire was in the plans on both sides. Yeah, yeah, it's not great. All right, cool. So no connections to the Stephen King universe this chapter. I didn't, at least none that I caught. No uh, emails from listeners this time. So if you have some feedback, you want to get in touch with us, you should definitely drop us a line at, at uh, Cast of Caught zombiegirls.com or hit us up over on the facebook group and there is no news in the stephen king adaptation world that really pertains to the dark tower uh, i will say i read i finished reading the book later which is the latest stephen king book it's one of his hard-boiled ones but which totally are not hard-boiled mysteries uh, and it's a really quick read and it's very dark tower multi-universe involved like there, there's connections to the Dark Tower. There's stuff you learn about really big um, Stephen King universe lore, like about the Deadlights and the Ritual of Chud, and like there is a lot in there. So hopefully that's not huge spoilers, just to say that you learn things about it. But uh, I would definitely, if you are looking for a super quick read, I would definitely check out later because it is very much in the sort of world that we enjoy as Stephen King fans and Dark Tower lovers. So. That would be my one little recommendation. All right. So let's get into our review of episode eight of The Stand called, you guessed it, The Stand. Sound good, PJ? <laughs> let's do it. All right, cool. I'm just going to kind of run through the synopsis and pause and let you get your thoughts on things as they unfolded. Okay? Okay. Cool. All right. So after episode eight, The Stand. So this is technically the end of the book, except for that there is a new episode that Stephen King wrote for this, which is Franny centric. It's the episode that I had been waiting all season for at the very end. But I'll complain about that next episode. <laughs> all right, cool. So Glenn, Ray and Larry all end up having to go before the judge, Judge Rat, Rat Girl, who is presiding over essentially a kangaroo court. And instead of being afraid or aligning themselves with Randall Flag, Glenn essentially starts making fun of him and starts sowing some doubt in the minds of people, including Lloyd, who freaks out and kills Lloyd and then feels really guilty about it, which is weird considering that the like middle of their little house, their like group home is a pool where people are chained uh, to death, but whatever. <laughs> As a result of the growing doubts, Flag appears to be losing some of his power. So what do you think about this this scene here? With so the... circling back around there, they actually start in a in a chained cage. Right. And like Glenn is sort of doing this thing where he's like, this is a good de deal. And, like, they're like, no, no, there's bodies hanging from all of these crosses outside. <laughs> right. Why is that a good deal? He's like, and this, like, this is one of the characters that they actually spend a little time developing through here. Mm -hmm. And so, like, Glenn, like, has these philosophical arguments as we move through the stand and, like, has been allowed to sort of, like, develop those a bit as his thing. And so in this moment, he does that, and he's like, oh, yeah, he wouldn't be hanging people from this if he didn't need to, like, strike fear into people's hearts because that means that a lot of these people doubt what they're up to and that this is a bad thing. And, like, when they're berating him, Glenn's like, you guys are all just afraid. And then when uh, Lloyd is about to shoot him, he's like, he's, he's basically like, you've never shot anybody before. 
And then I kind of had the flashback to all of of Lloyd's earlier stuff. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's right. Lloyd really, like, played a big game, but, like, never actually was the true bad guy until this moment when he, like, has a panic attack and the girl's yelling at him to shoot him and he she does or he does. And then, like, in a rage of what he's done after <laughs> Glenn kind of like, was like, I forgive you. Like, yeah, you don't know what you're doing yeah, yeah. uh-huh you don't know and, any better or whatever yeah and so this is like one of the few scenes i've seen so far besides like everything with uh, um with uh what's his name um shoot harold everything with harold like this is like one spot where i was like and good character development thank you right yeah i mean it's also glenn is one of the best characters in this he's such a like a warm sort of presence he there's a likableness to him and then also i feel like after episode after episodes of the actor playing lloyd being terrible he's actually able to do something different than be like a ridiculous over-the-top party city pimp he sort of feels like a ringling brothers like entry man right and so when he even though i think that this character arc it doesn't make any sense but the individual performances I think are good in the section. And it goes back to that same thing I said last time about like the performance between the actor, uh, James Marsden and Franny, where they're having this really poignant moment that I was like, God, if I cared about these characters, this would be really great. But as a standalone <laughs> scene, this is, you know, these are really good performances. And I think that's the same thing that happens here, which is kind of amazing. Cause it's in the middle of the most ridiculous. Scene I know. Right. I like I was not expecting this to be like, Oh yeah, that was actually pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so Ray and Larry are separated. Uh, She's very afraid because now she's seen that Glenn's death was a spectacle and she's afraid the same thing is going to happen to her. I'm very frustrated by the Rafe character because we know nothing. The the show had no interest in her whatsoever, despite the fact that she's one of the final people that go and does the stand. We know nothing about her, but whatever. Yeah. So they get separated and Nadine comes down and she's, you know, I don't know, being weird. And he forces her to look at herself and... Suddenly it clicks to her that she does not look good, that she is not supposed to survive, that she has been tricked, and she goes, it causes her to go into labor. Uh, and she goes upstairs, now Rat Girl is in some weird fetish nurse outfit, and she decides she's been used, so she she jump, basically jumps out the window and kills herself, and kills the prince that was supposed to be coming forth from her soon, angering Flag, who's heartbroken over the loss of his son. All right, what'd you think of this? I mean, it's pretty unbelievable that she broke a plate glass window with a tiny little rock. But it was a magical glowy rock. I guess if it was so magical, <laughs> then when he rubbed his, his hand across it to like convince her to stay, she would have, right? You'd think. Yeah. I mean, this this is different from the book in that in the book, she basically tricks him into losing his temper, temper and killing her and the child. Yep. So I don't know. What do you think about this change? Uh, well, didn't they do the same in the um, uh, original made-for-TV one as well? I thought she jumped off of something and killed herself that way. Oh, maybe I don't. You know, I don't. I honestly don't remember that detail. It's been years and years and years since I've seen the. You know. It has for me too. So feel free to call me out, guys, if um, I'm wrong. But like, it's the part of my mind that's tugging at me remembers something similar to this is it and so maybe this is just the we're calling back to the original made for tv miniseries mm-hmm. um and it's fine like i don't actually care that much the the thing is is like we've gotten so little development mm-hmm. with these two characters yeah that like the only way like you you 
even felt like there was like a little twinge here is when um when larry's talking to her eddie's like and you saved me and the kid yeah and it's like and she's like oh yeah good point and it's like oh man really and then even with the like nurse is about to like give her an injection instead she like gently pushes her away and is like no you never loved me and it's like it's super weak and then his reaction is even just like well she's dead I'm going to go to the baby's room for a bit. And then like, instead of him, they just cut to like Lloyd actually having a little bit of depth for a little while crying and being like nervous about his fate. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I guess. Um, All right, cool. So Larry and Ray are sentenced to be drowned in a swimming pool where everybody can. So the the murder swimming pool is now actually going to be turned into a swimming pool with them chained to the bottom. Larry and starts shouting out that he fears no evil and this inspires people to join in this chant and uh as and flag essentially loses control of the crowd even lloyd at this point turns on him and and wants to unchain them yeah and then he's like yelling to get the keys and like randall flag does this silly dance everybody's actually doing poor dancing (laughs) this yeah this is our last look at las vegas and i have Every time it's bothered me and I have finally come to the conclusion that Las Vegas, as it is depicted in the show, is homophobic and I fucking hate it. Yeah. Two problems here. One, like I said, I think it's homophobic. But B, it also undercuts this ending, right? Because the whole heel turn when they stand is about pushing back against their fears. But we've never been given any in-context evidence to believe that at large people fear flag because it's just this you know yeah what's supposed to in the book where it's like this totalitarian regime where people are so afraid they don't even drink alcohol because they're afraid if they do they might slip up and say something bad about flag and they're going to end up crucified on the roads you know we we barely saw any of that and that's the kind of stuff i think you have to make flag and las vegas feel like a dangerous place so that when people feel empowered to stand up to him it feels like a real thing instead of just some like rando we've never seen before like looking concerned in yeah the, the old guy that they cut yes! to like five different times through this episode where it's like that one old guy the one that doesn't quite look as crazy as some of the other ones like he doesn't look like he's enjoying himself as much right like, and, what? and it's kind of a shame because i do think like you said glenn really sells it the only reason we even think that this might be true is just because Glenn's saying it, not because we're actually seeing any evidence that supports it. When I watched it, I didn't get as much like, oh, man, they're really just being shitty about um, uh, gay folks. I felt more like it was like some person who barely understood any kind of like S&M stuff or mm-hmm. anything was like, I could describe a heathenistic world look at this and they're like come up with a bad cliche that's yeah. super awful and like kind of tacky and like not really hitting the mark and then like they they dug in their heels on that in that like oh yeah everybody just likes to drink and hang from jungle bars naked <laughs> it's like well yeah. i mean i guess some people do but like there's a lot more to that sort of lifestyle than that and like it's not it's not like you said it's not a fearful lifestyle it's a more like oh, we're with this guy because he's going to let us party into the middle of the night and not do anything. Whereas really it's like, 
you keep working down in the mines, uh, fixing the power and getting all the infrastructure back yeah. together, or you're going to be in the pit battling your fellow man or hanging from a, a building somewhere, you know, and, yeah. and you don't get that kind of fear. But then at the very end, they like try to lean in onto that portion of it, which. And you're just like, but what? But well, what? Where is and this like, coming from? Yeah. Yeah. And even like when people are like, I fear no evil. And like people are like looking around like it takes forever for him to find the one girl that's screaming in a silent crowd. I fear no evil. Right. Like, we don't even see her. Yeah. You don't see her. <laughs> and then like you get the old guy that we keep getting like whiplashed with. And he's like, fear no evil. And then like a group of people like jump on him for some reason. But yeah. not in the like we're going to kill you ways. More like uh, we just tackled this guy. <laughs> And yeah. then, like, the guy's, like, scot-free and walking away after that. It's like, what? Yeah. Yeah. I just think – I think there was some strategic choices made around Las Vegas that just really undercut its finale. Hmm. Um, yeah. And, and then – And I still say it's homophobic. <laughs> yeah. It's, only because, like, literally all we – you know, that's the only place we see queerness represented. When somebody's like, okay, let's make what hell would be like. What's the most – like perverse most uninhibited most like transgressive things you can think of they're like put some gays in some gold booty shorts and have them you know what i mean i'm just like whatever dude like i, mean, I see they, you they had a lot of like um girls in scantily clad clothing and like apparently if you have colored hair you were of of the bad yeah, sort as it's, well it's it's so like weirdly yeah regressive in its sort of social politics that and and so the part for me that like i agree with you on is like if you take vegas and compare it to uh boulder then it becomes really bad if you just like take uh vegas by itself then it becomes this like bad cliche of like someone who doesn't know what bad stuff is is like this is real bad guys look at this i got a person in like almost no clothing dancing around here and there's like a girl with their top off whoa and they're near a bar look at them they're drinking like yeah no okay i guess and like doing some drugs maybe i don't you know it's a hundred percent that context you're absolutely right it is the fact that it is meant to be juxtaposed against the good people and the you know the godly people and the righteous people if that if that context of those two things was not there just having guys in booty shorts is not homophobic it's no it's just kind of weird and silly like it's the really poor choices in your party scenes yeah guys yep that's you nailed it that is literally exactly the the crux of my issue with it all right so things are not going well the, t- the the three people in the crowd have turned on on flag and now he's doing a weird dance like you said <laughs> amongst all of this madness the trash can man who is now the toxic avenger i don't know comes rolling in on his nuclear bomb he has had radiation poison and is basically melting instead of bringing the bomb to i guess the planes which we saw none of this plan so we have no idea yeah, they basically explain all of this with, like, uh, the rat girl, like, saying, cut to this, cut to this. And, like, you get some, like, camera shots of an overhead of a plane, like, outside of Vegas with the trash can man driving around and, like, a drone yeah. following him. And then, like, here's his Randall flag dancing and cut to this. Yeah. So he brings it in when he does. And this actually, I don't know. I don't know what you thought about this. I thought this looked really cool. That when the sort of the hand of God forms in the cloud covers the building. I thought that looked kind of rad. Was it God, though? I mean, there is a lot of people who think that 
the the whole like god stuff is because it's being contextualized through the character of abigail who is a christian woman but Mm -hmm. knowing the stephen king multiverseology probably the hand of god is more like gan right who is like the the god in the stephen king multiverse so by hand of god it's more it's the language that that i know to use to describe it as opposed to like a christian god does that make Hmm. sense yeah sure i mean god is anything that you can't explain right. uh, bigger right. than you so like that fair enough I, but, I just, but um, did you like the i specifically meant the visual of the smoky hand covering okay, the building okay. yeah i thought more like when his kid died and it, it felt to me like this whole th- thing was like well um we'll give you one last chance if you can get rid of these people and like rally your troops and float again then uh, you're golden if not we're gonna take you back to the pit we keep you in normally um we haven't seen the final episode yet but it's that's the pit is not where he ends up <laughs> oh, okay okay so <laughs> you'll see we're gonna talk oh, so about we actually that get, okay uh, yeah i guess i don't know what the reveal is yes so along with the hand of god is lightning bolts that come and smite everyone all the baddies well some of them like it's, it's so one funny bit is uh lloyd's death oh like, yeah yeah so like everybody's getting just like vaporized and yep. I guess maybe because Lloyd like had a change of heart at the end. He just he gets get his head taken vaporized. off. He <laughs> yeah. just gets like whacked in the head real hard and dies. I was a little sad to see Rat Lady go. I was like, no. But they kind of like uh, all of those deaths were so um, sort of insignificant because it's just like zap, 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 zap. Yeah. Zap. Like they did. Like the only interesting thing someone did right before they died, I think, is. Uh, what's her name with the pink hair like push a lady and then she gets zapped and it's like <laughs> like oh wait like she was okay until she pushed that lady down to get past her and then like zappy time right yeah you know, i well guess. i've been waiting this ever since she was mean to tom cole and i was like zapper zapper <sighs> okay cool so one of the things that gets zapped is not just peoples but the nuclear bomb in which detonates it obliterating all of new vegas and everyone in it yeah that one's also kind of annoying (laughs) all right so someone who did not get obliterated though is Stu, who is still stuck in that ravine with his dog or with kojak the dog i guess not i guess it's his dog now because glenn's dead Yep. who sees the explosion and is saved by Tom who find who uh, Kojak finds oh and the dog also convinces him not to take too many pills that's right so there's a theory of why some people were immune and that is that the people who have the shine or touch or whatever mm-hmm. are the ones who survive which is why they're able to receive those dream messages from flag and from from mother Abigail and so you could extrapolate from that if you believe that that theory is true, that also Kojak has that, has some degree of shine. And that's what makes him a special dog. So that's why he was, he's like smarter and is sort of like able to kind of maybe not communicate, but sort of like subconsciously communicate with Stu in a way to prevent him from killing himself. Yeah, maybe. And and then is the wolf a metaphor that he attacks or is that like an actual wolf? You know, I don't know because I know that Randall Flagg, one of his things that he can kind of like control or be is a wolf. And so it might be kind of like a symbolic stand. Well, so I was I like know. with the dog and the mind control and the pills, like 
I almost thought for a moment that that was a dreamscape and mm. that this was like the Mother Abigail bit again, only like this time, like he was ready for him and the dog like by fending off the wolf was like fending off the suicidal thoughts at the same time and like this sort of like dreamy sequence and it's hard to mm-hmm. tell because like it's foggy and red and like looks mm-hmm. weird and yeah. you don't know whether they're dreaming or not and then like tom rolls in yeah i mean like i kind of took it as being literal but i think that there's plenty of reason to think that maybe it was more of a spiritual battle I don't know. Yeah. Our dream battle. I, I think choose your own adventure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the reason I'm uh, also a little like irritated about the whole Vegas bomb explosion thing is because they spent time in here like trying to say that some people realized their their ways and yeah. like got out early. Yeah. But like then you bomb it in such a way that like no one got out early there. <laughs> I can't remember in the book. Did Larry and Ra- uh uh, I thought they survived. Right. I thought they did too. Yeah, and so then, like, I don't know. Do you maybe think I'm it was going to be like a nuke the fridge situation where they were like they were in the pool, so they survived? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if we just duck under the water, we'll be fine. And it'll right, be a that's how light. it works, right? right? And then we stick our head up, and we're fine. No yep. melty or anything. Nope, not melty at all. But yeah, mm. no. Uh, yeah. All right, so finally we cut back to Colorado where Joe finally speaks again saying that the that flag is gone. Uh, and much like Nadine, when she got some news, this forces this causes Franny to go into labor. Roll credits. All right. Overall thoughts on the stand. Ep- the this episode of the stand. I mean, this is probably one of the sort of better episodes yeah, i guess i agree with that i mean i think it's absurd in some places like this the trial and stuff but i mean the trial is kind of fun it like reminded me like of a mad max type of yeah. universe not yeah. really of a stephen king universe per se right right but like yeah i don't know i i've been lukewarm on this whole series this episode like had some things that i liked a little more than good. some of the past but that's good I still, I, I still like you were saying about Ray. Like, there's a lot of characters that are just like sort of tossed in and then tossed right back out again. Yeah, and they don't really make a stew. And well, <laughs> stew, I guess. <laughs> just, I, I was like, that <laughs> was that was not my intent. Like, the, you're baking like a cookie, and like these ingredients need to be in there and like mixed proportionately to be tasty. And like, yeah, we are getting under. <laughs> underserved on like many of these ingredients and like left with something that's like sort of a a shell of its own self unless you write in your own mind everything that you want to like see from these characters yeah yeah i mean i will say i watched it with someone that did not read the books and was like i do not understand this why (laughs) why like he didn't understand the motivation for anything he didn't it none of it made sense like he's like this doesn't make sense I don't understand this. And I was like, well, that's not great because I mean, I know that I'm filling a lot of blanks in with Mm -hmm. having seen the original miniseries and having read the book. I mean, it's been a long time for both of them, but I have enough context that I'm able to be like, Oh yeah, that's right. Because this and that. And And without that, he was totally lost. That's not great. Well, even like the trash can man, like they didn't give enough time with him to like really to understand his crazy motivations and like, cut back and forth to him with all this weird stuff he's doing instead it's like 
um yeah this guy like to blow a thing up and then like he came to vegas and got sent out to this place and like grabs a bomb and drives around with it and like you don't even get any real context in him like going sideways over time yeah. you just like you go from hey he's got a bomb and like he's not being very uh cautious with his geiger counter to like and now he's driving through the city pulling into a building yeah, it's kind of a shame because he's definitely a character who has a lot of depth in the book. Like I was talking about Jonas, Stephen King makes these villains that he infuses with like real humanity, even if you don't necessarily agree with them or like them. Like they feel like realized characters and none of that is happening for Trash Can Man here. You don't know any of his like very sad, very tragic backstory. Um yeah, I don't know, man. I don't know. Uh, like you, this was definitely... I. Here's the thing. is While I'm watching the show, I'm entertained enough. Like, mm-hmm. the production values are pretty good. The performances are pretty good. There are things, individual scenes and moments and ideas that I find to be really compelling. My issue is kind of taken as a whole. Like, I think there are some fundamental problems with character development and weird choices being, I mean, like, I, I don't, I'm not a purist. You can change it if it works. Absolutely. But they're making choices that don't, that undercut the, undercut them in terms uh, of. If you're like, going to pare down, like, Ray's character to the point where, like, she's almost not, ex- you know, really much of the story. Then why, why have even her go? Have her? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Like, exi- if you really do not want to spend a bunch of time developing these characters, cut them. Yep. Cut them. It's not like she brought anything other to the table, really. I mean, the actor's perfectly fine. She didn't do, she did a perfectly fine job with what she had. But it, it feels very strange to have these basically main characters become red shirts in a way. Yeah, and it like the been judge earlier just, on and like. Just cut them. Yeah, just cut them. Cut them. Mm-hmm. I agree yeah. 100%. You could have done because you could have just focused more on Tom, got a bigger Tom story, right. and like cut a lot of that other stuff out, and you would have still had like in a, a compelling version of the stand that gave you at least an in depth dive into Tom and like the trash can man or something like that. Right. And you could have saved like 14 to 20 minutes worth of stuff that was just like little clips of like, oh, and the judge and her Kia are heading over her uh, Prius or heading over to like this hotel mm-hmm. to hide out for a while. And, like, then you wouldn't waste time talking about her. Like, I know there's another one. <laughs> well, is that necessary? No, right. it's probably not. No. Yeah. Mm. All right, cool. Well, we're going to wrap up. Like I said, this is a, a new episode that was written because Stephen King over the years has regretted not giving Franny an opportunity to do her own stand. So he added this coda. And uh, we're going to talk about it next time. I'm excited. I'm actually excited to talk about this one. There's some interesting things. There's some weird things that i feel uncomfortable about kind of like the rest of the it's like the rest of the series like there's things i like and things that i'm like mystified by choices that are made but we'll get there we'll get there so we don't have any listener feedback this episode but keep an eye on the facebook page because there will be next next episode and if you want to reach out to us you can reach us at cast of or come over to the facebook page if you're enjoying the show leave us a review on apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts if you're looking for something to watch this weekend or this week, I don't know what day this episode comes out, so I guess this week, head over to the Zombie Girls website and check out our video on demand and streaming calendar. If you're a horror movie fan, all the new stuff that is coming to streaming and video on demand is available there for you to, to check out and get excited about. And if you're a video game nerd like me, 
We now have a Twitch channel at tw it's twitch.tv uh, forward slash zombie girls. So you can today, for instance, right now I'm playing through the Saw game from, I don't know, several years. Saw game? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I'm doing this mini season with the Here's Johnny guys, Mars and myself from Stream Queens. Okay. We're watching the entire Saw series. So I'd never oh, seen God. any it of them. It gets real bad towards the end. And I'd then... never seen one. Because oh. I, I, I'm, like, kind of squeamish. I love horror movies, but I'm kind of squeamish about, like, torture-y stuff. So I had just avoided it. Um, so I've now seen a Saw, and I've been playing through the game. <laughs> but I'm a little nervous about what's to come. A couple of things. Um, saw that one coming. <laughs> <laughs> I saw what you did there. Okay, we now have merch. So if you want to represent your love of Cast of Claw, we have t-shirts, stickers, mugs, whatever you want. Check out our T Public store. It's tpublic.com forward slash zombie dash girls dash podcast. And there's shirts for all the various podcasts on the, the network. And the Cast of Call one, I think, is super rad. So, yeah, rep it. And then finally, if you love the show uh, and you want to support us, we have a Patreon. Join it. You'll get all kinds of cool bonus content as well as episode every episode is extended for for patrons um this time we're going to be talking about the stand there's been a, lots of various versions of adaptations there's also some information that might illuminate some interesting things about why the trash can man was treated the way they he was in this the way that why they went the way they did so we'll be talking about some of that stuff in the extended episode all right but for those of you who are not sticking around for the extended episode, let's wrap it up. DJ, where else can they find you on the internet? Now, if you swing over to deadlander.com and you can check out uh, the, the deadlander podcast. <laughs> We're really good at branding there. Um, uh, also, um, <laughs> so I'm still sitting on dslrfilmnoob.com, but uh, one of our friends kindly redirected it to uh, dongdancer.com. So if you oh, want to see... No! <laughs> Yeah, they're wonderful folks who are definitely nice. Um, yeah, I haven't figured out how to fix that yet. So if you go to dongdancer.com, the DSLR film noob website in its entirety sits there broken and Is it Jeff? The... Did Jeff do it? <laughs> yeah, it was Jeff. Of course he did. <laughs> okay. He's such um, a butt. <laughs> yeah, and uh, uh otherwise, um that's about it really. Uh I do put some stuff on Etsy occasionally. I've always threatened to do some cast of art and someday. I've uh, seen so it, I've seen it in progress. It looks I, rad. When it's done, it's gotta be rad. I actually was about to revisit and finish your project, and then I started my laser on fire. Oh no. Yeah. So um and then I had so many other projects going on simultaneously that I had to clean those up just so I have enough room to drag the laser out of the corner and see what i did did to it or what's wrong with it oh, um no. so uh, <laughs> stay tuned folks <laughs> yeah stay tuned for that uh, uh, economic disaster but yeah oh no okay i'm sending good juju your way my friend oh geez okay well all right if you want more of me you can find me on zombie girls horror podcast review films from a feminist perspective our next episode is going to be about um the works of brandon cronenberg so yeah, so that's what we're doing on there. We've got Stream Queens. Our new episode, Cooties, is out now with one of our patrons, which, by the way, is a thing. If you are a patron at a particular perk, you get to come on the show of your choice, which includes Cast of Claw. You can come nerd out with us. You should do it. It's really fun. You probably and know more about Stephen King than I do. Go! <laughs> um, and more deadly, we just reviewed Violation, which is a lot. <laughs> it's really good but it is a lot dj i have seen things that i cannot unsee 
and of course the mini series for here's johnny coming up very soon on the saw series all right dj with all of that rambling take us out Hop into that black cart with ruins on it and ride into the sunset <laughs> as the maggots drip from the sides where the goats sadly passed away. Into the sunset you ride and please try not to smell because Rhea's out there and she smells like Rhea. Diarrhea. Yeah. <laughs> I can't stop thinking about how bad she must smell. Like it's literally all I'm thinking about whenever she's in the book. I'm just like, oh God. I know, I know when like he has to like stop his horse from winning away from her you're just like <laughs> all right bye everybody thanks everybody for listening and to my co-host dj for making me laugh and for indulging all of my tinfoil hat conspiracies production on this episode was done by yours truly our theme song for the show was created by dj